And so here's a news outlet that is very intentionally putting conservative voices front and center, right next to more liberal voices. And I'm someone who's creating this content, who's doing it because I believe that the media ecosystem is broken. And that is also a very attractive proposition to a lot of people on the right. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Isaac Saul. He's the founder of Tangle News, which is an independent ad-free politics newsletter and podcast. Isaac's contribution to problems he saw with our media was to put together a place to give readers direct quotes from both sides of big debate in the news, along with Isaac's own take. Isaac's building a subscriber-based business around that effort, which is to have people read outside their regular bubble. He previously worked as a first hire with Ashton Kutcher on A+, a business built to create a source of positive news. And Isaac has an interesting entrepreneurial story about how he came to found Tangle and how things are going with it. You should listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Isaac Saul with Tangle News. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Isaac, uh, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? My name is Isaac Saul. I am a politics reporter, I guess, at heart, but also a resident of, of Bucks County, Pennsylvania, which is a big part of my Genesis story, a very divided political county in PA that used to be a bellwether county when I was growing up. And I am the founder of Tangle News, which is an independent ad-free politics newsletter and podcast where we take one big debate happening in the political world every day and we offer views on it from the left and the right and the center. And then I kind of share with my readers my take. Our goal is trying to get people out of their political bubbles and have them view some arguments from the other side more honestly and in a more straightforward way than I think is happening in a lot of media spaces. So that's that's kind of what I'm all about. How did you first get interested in kind of the intersection of politics and news? So I went to school, I went to the University of Pittsburgh to be a sports reporter, well, actually to be an athletic trainer. And then turns out biology classes in a really good pre-med school are really hard. And I, I, got, I got weeded out pretty quick and I was loving all my writing classes and I applied for a job at the school newspaper. And because I was a big sports junkie, I took a position as an associate editor in the sports section. And so my foray into journalism was actually as a sports reporter. And I did a little bit of that when I was in high school. For three or four years, I sort of climbed the ranks at the Pitt News at the University of Pittsburgh. And when I graduated, I realized a lot of my writing was sort of happening at the intersection of sports and politics, and that that was kind of what really interested me more than anything else. And so when I graduated college, I started looking for opportunities to write about things that were a bit more weighty than a game recap or a sports opinion piece. And essentially, I ended up landing in Israel for about six or seven months where I was living in yeshiva in a religious school there and writing. I, it was a program where they sort of paired an internship, a writing internship with religious education. It's a sort of a common thing in the Jewish world to fund these trips for young Jewish men and women to try and build connections with them in Israel and expose them to some more religious 
Judaism and more Orthodox Judaism. And so I had a really, really, really interesting and kind of mind expanding experience there living in a religious school. And I got a chance to work with a professor out there and edit some writing he was doing. I got a chance to travel. And towards the end of that six or seven months in Jerusalem, I started applying for jobs. And it was during the time of the revolution in Egypt. And I spent some time in Egypt and I wrote a few stories about what I was seeing and experiencing down there. And I ended up applying to about 40 or 50 news outlets with that, <laughs> with that, those pieces of writing. And I got a job at the Huffington Post, which as you and your listeners might know, has a reputation for sort of being a left-leaning media outlet. I took a job there, not because I was a diehard liberal, but because it was the only place that actually gave me a job. And when I left the Huffington Post, I realized pretty quickly that this tag that I was a Huffington Post reporter was going to stick with me and, and sort of influence the way people viewed my writing. And that was sort of my first real wake up call to this fact that people were judging news in the space, not based on what the content of the news was, but pretty much based on where it was published. And that most of the readers I was being exposed to at the Huffington Post were people who had liberal left-leaning views. And that when I stepped out of that bubble, there were a lot of people who were really skeptical about me and my writing just because of my experience there. And that was one of the first times I had like an inkling of this idea of building a news outlet that was very intentionally trying to grab a diverse set of readers, which eventually turned into Tangle. Makes sense. Where are you religiously and politically? It's a great question. Um, both are, are, I guess, complicated answers. And I don't mean that as a cop out. I think it's just true. They're, they're very nuanced. Religiously, I would say, you know, I, I mean, I was raised in a reformed Jewish home, like a lot of American Jews were. Uh, I was bar mitzvahed and then pretty much viewed religious school as being a detriment on my weekend and something I wasn't much interested in doing. I had a really good on-campus rabbi at the University of Pittsburgh and spent pretty much every Friday night at Shabbat at his house. And he was the person who helped facilitate this trip to Israel. And, you know, my experience there was really eye-opening. There were a lot of things I assumed about Orthodox and religious Jews that wasn't true. There are a lot of things I learned about them that I didn't know. There was a lot of things about that lifestyle that really appealed to me and a lot of things about it that really did not appeal to me. From a religious perspective, I am sort of a pseudo-practicing Jew. I, I observe Shabbat in some ways. Mostly these days, it means really taking a total 24 hours off from the news and media. And I try to take 24 hours off from electronics. I do some kind of old school, traditional Jewish things like trying to eat kosher and avoid pork and mixing milk and cheese and things like that. And I study sometimes with uh, some a rabbi of mine and other friends of mine who I've made in the Jewish community who are more religious than me. And so I would say it's kind of evolving, but... I don't really fit neatly into any of the Jewish families or orthodoxies. And I don't really have a, a home. A lot of Jews identify very specifically with a certain sect of Judaism is kind of the secular way of putting it. Uh, and I, I don't have that. And politically, you know, I would say my politics are very incongruent. I'm deeply skeptical of both of the major political parties in our country today. I think they're both failing us in different ways. I think on certain social issues like immigration and abortion and gay rights, I'm very left on certain issues that are becoming really big issues in America today, like free speech and religious rights and how we're conducting foreign policy abroad. I'm much more right. And what sort of happens in my newsletter, I think, and and what happens when I'm thinking about a lot of political issues is I just try and ignore what the people on each political side are saying and stake out a position that's independent to that current topic that I'm thinking about or mulling over or is being debated. I found that a lot of people who I think are really wrong about certain issues are very right about other issues. And my guiding principle is trying to read arguments without 
caring who is the one presenting them and just sort of judging them based on the merits of the argument. So, you know, I guess in both regards, it's kind of a mixed bag and I very much don't feel like a fully formed product, but that's part of what makes what I'm doing with Tangle possible and and makes it attractive to some people. I noticed that you spent quite a stretch with A plus with Ashton Kutcher's outlet. Tell me about how you landed there and what that was like, what you learned. Yeah. So I was at the Huffington Post. Actually, the the quote unquote job that I got was um, it was they they were calling it not an internship, but a fellowship, I believe. And it was basically an internship. The first four or five months, there was a pool of about 50 of us. And we were all working for 10 or 15 bucks an hour. And I was commuting from my parents' house in Philadelphia. And at the end of the fellowship period, they picked three or four of those 50 people for a full-time job. And I was one of them, which was really exciting. And a few months after I took that full-time job, which was, you know, a salaried position with benefits, I think I was making like $38,000 a year or 40 grand a year living in New York, which obviously is not easy to do. I got approached. I just got this email. It almost seemed like a phishing email. It was somebody who was saying, hey, I'm an associate of Ashen Kutcher's. We're starting a media company. We created this service that tracks some of the most viral writers online. And over the course of the last month or two, I'd had a couple pieces at the Huffington Post that went viral, as we used to say in the in the business. And they basically said, you know, you're young and we're building this media company. And we want some young people on the ground floor. Would you be interested in talking? And I got on the phone with the guy. And in the first call, he looped in Ashton, who I basically only knew from that 70s show at the time. And I, you know, I don't know how familiar you or anybody else is with Ashton, but he's a very well-spoken, charming guy who is really charismatic and cares a lot about the stuff that he spends his time on. And he basically gave me a really interesting pitch on the state of the media and the fact that the press was overwhelmingly negative and everything that was out there made him feel horrible when he was trying to read about the news and learn about it. And he had this vision for creating a media company that was sort of a, a good news company, but didn't just do, you know, dog and cat videos and baby videos and stuff that kind of made people laugh and giggle, but wanted to do real journalism. I'd switched my major to a nonfiction writing journalism track. I had experience at the school paper. I was now working the Huffington Post. So I wanted to do real journalism. That's why I got in the business and uh, I became the first full-time or maybe second full-time editorial hire. I think me and one other person were hired about the same week. I launched the political division there, the politics section. And over time, what we started doing was what I would call solutions journalism. This is something that's been popularized by a few people. Tina Rosenberg is probably one of the biggest names. She's at the New York Times or was. I actually don't think she is anymore. And solutions journalism is the idea that basically instead of focusing on the people who are breaking everything, to focus on the people who are fixing things. So we might cover a bill that's passed in Congress that is going to solve the lead water crisis or something like that. And the angle is, you know, there's a very journalistic side to it, but we're just saying this is like a solution. Here's what they did. Here, here's how it worked. Here's how maybe the legislation could have been better, according to these people. Um, and we did a lot of reporting like that for about six or seven years. And at one point, our newsroom grew to about 30 or 35 people. We eventually hired a lot of people who were more experienced and, and bigger veterans than I was. And I learned a lot. First of all, we, we had a real functioning newsroom for, for several years where we were covering stories as they broke. We were doing original pieces. We were sourcing stuff on Capitol Hill. And that was all really exciting. I think I learned a lot of the standard stuff you learn in a newsroom. But I also, you know, it was a startup. So I learned how to kind of build a media company from the ground up, which was really valuable for my experience with Tangle. I learned about growth. I learned about the money side of things. I learned about the kind of mistakes that can set you back years and months. Towards the end of my time at A+, we were bought by Chicken Soup for the Soul Entertainment, which you might remember the old Chicken Soup for the Soul books. They actually have a whole media brand now. 
and they wanted to turn A plus, basically take what it was and turn it into more of a video shop and eventually killed all the written articles, which I love the people over there. A lot of them are still friends of mine, but that was that was tough for me as a writer. It wasn't something I was really interested in doing video. So the writing was kind of on the wall when the acquisition happened. And around that time, I started to launch Tangle and wrote the first couple of newsletters. And that was really the beginning of Tangle was knowing that um, you know my time at A plus was probably coming to an end. And I'd freelance for a lot of places during my time at A plus. They they gave us quite a bit of autonomy, so I had some bylines and Time Magazine and Independent Journal Review and Vox and places like that. And so at the end. I was able to take all of that experience and sort of put it into the very first editions of Tangle, which I launched while I was still at A+. I would do, I'd basically wake up at five, work until seven or eight, get on the train, go to work, take my lunch break, do some work on Tangle, finish my day at work, come home, work on Tangle till about nine o'clock, start it all over again the next day. And I did that for about um, eight months, 10 months until, you know, it was clear to me that what I was doing at Tangle was going to be sort of a a viable path forward. And then I eventually resigned from A plus and, and made the jump to doing it full time. There's something about that story that I don't know, kind of warms my heart. I like it when somebody finds something that's a good fit for them and makes a go of it entrepreneurially or is in the process of doing that to get it going. What did it require help from anybody else at the beginning? Did you need funding? What is the sort of beginning of that entrepreneurial journey, or is it just you sort of cranking away some stuff? Yeah, it's a great question. So for, for me, I mean, I, first of all, I, you know, I don't think there's any one right answer to this. I think a lot of people I've seen have success with different, different pathways. One of the things that I learned from my experience at A+, was that uh, having investors made things really complicated. And that was not something I wanted to do early on. So I literally bootstrapped the business from the very beginning. It was my own money and my own risk that I put into it. Um, and I didn't have much money, but I had a lot of risk. I crowdsourced help. I reached out to former colleagues, to current colleagues, to my smartest friends. I had this kind of email list of 50 or 60 people that was basically like an advisory board, I think. And in the early days, they helped me name the newsletter. My wife's brother actually came up with the name Tangle. He was somebody who I had on the emailing list and threw me that name. I described what I was trying to build and I thought it was just perfect and had this very fresh kind of startup -y vibe. I actually promised him 1% of Tangle when we did it and I expected it to totally fail and not be worth anything, which I now deeply regret. It's probably the worst handshake deal I've ever made. And I sent the first week of the Tangle editions to, to people on this mailing list purely to get feedback about the format, about how it hit them, what they liked, what they didn't, whether they would read something like this. Early on, that actually really, those first week or two, I mean, I had drawn this up in a notebook and the concept didn't change in a really big way, but I got a lot from the feedback that I got early on. The initial concept was introduce the topic, tell people what folks on the right were saying, tell people what folks on the left were saying, and then have some kind of either a verdict or like a one specific view that I thought was like the quote unquote right view. What it really turned into was people saying, I'm really interested in what you think after reading the right and the left's take. Could you add like your own analysis? It doesn't have to be an opinion piece, but I would just love what you make of these arguments. And so I introduced the section, my take, which comes after the intro and the left and the right take. And then I was summarizing the left and the right's take. So what came from that was a lot of people saying, you know, it doesn't really seem fair that you're summarizing what people on the left and the right are saying when you then give your take. So maybe you should quote them directly. And then it evolved into this next level where I was sharing real clips of what people, opinion columnists and podcast hosts and television hosts were saying word for word verbatim and just quoting them in the left and the right section and then sort of offering my take. And then I came up with all sorts of other ideas for sections. So a lot of the questions I would get from people were things like, 
Have you seen this story? I feel like nobody's talking about it. It's kind of falling under the radar because everybody's talking about the war in Ukraine or something like that. So I introduced a section called A Story That Matters, which every day I basically share a section that is, I think, a really important story that should be getting more traction, but is not being featured on the homepage of any major newspapers or anything like that. And over time, just, you know, the newsletter sort of built that way. That was kind of the creative side of it. You know, I think from a financial and sort of more entrepreneurial perspective, I think the things that I did really well was that I I asked a ton of questions of people who had done what I was doing. You know, I reached out to a lot of newsletter creators and people who had started media foundations and ask them questions about the things I didn't know, the money side of stuff, the the advertising, subscription growth. I read everything I possibly could about how to build a newsletter audience and how to convert them into subscribers and things like that. I also did everything I possibly could do on my own. I think like a sort of a philosophy I have is I'm not going to pay somebody to do something that I can do, whether it's work that is really tiresome and boring or whether it's work that's really important and, you know, maybe technical and I don't totally know how to do it, but I could learn to do it if I spent 30 minutes watching YouTube videos. I really committed to that idea of just the actual money I was putting into it and the stuff I was getting people to do. I I wasn't going to spend any money or I guess blow any favors from people when it was something I could do myself. And I, I think that really helped me a lot early on and kind of got me off the ground into a point where I sort of had a really viable product and a viable business. Looking back on it now, there's obviously a lot of things that I may have done differently, but overall it was a, I I had a good mix of, I think really, really hard work and a couple good breaks and and a little bit of luck and a really supportive group of people around me who were, you know, willing to offer advice and things like that. And I guess the final thing I would just say is I sought out feedback really directly from my customers. In this case, you know, those are my readers, but I polled my readers regularly about stuff they wanted to see in the newsletter, things they didn't like, things they liked. And that I still do that today. You know, we have 40,000 people on our mailing list now, and I still do that. And that those insights are still really important. And it creates a lot of buy-in with people when they feel like they're getting to make decisions about the direction of the product, which I think is really good for business. The audience for sort of this both sides and analysis approach is a harder audience to chase than the audiences of true believers. It it seems to be the way a lot of the media world has sorted out, like the more red meat, the more clicks or whatever. So it pulls people or pulls organizations a lot of times out of the lane that you're in elsewhere. How do you see that location that you've chosen and its relationship to the audience and its effect on it as a business? First of all, I would say (laughs) the observation you're making is 100% accurate. I think I could probably be a millionaire right now if I wanted to, if I was open to kind of selling my soul and doing the really dirty work of sensationalism and clickbait and kind of feeding people what they want. I think it's a lot more challenging to get people to step into spaces that make them uncomfortable or read things that they don't like. Frankly, that's probably the thing I'm most proud of in terms of what Tangle's doing and the fact that we're sort of growing and thriving and surviving is that we are doing that without kind of sacrificing any values or doing the kind of stuff that I sort of view as being a little bit sleazy in the media space and especially the political media space. Interestingly enough, I guess like I would even divide that question into the two political sides in the country right now. The way that I think about it is actually very tied to the current political atmosphere, which is that I approach readers in a different way based on what I suspect their political persuasions might be. I don't think there's anything nefarious about that. I think it's just a reality that I'm serving 
people of different political persuasions in a different way. So the concrete example is if I'm talking to someone who is more liberal or left, their general feeling about the country is they can't understand why anybody would vote for Donald Trump or how someone could support a Republican president. And so when I am talking to them or trying to sell tangle to them, my message is you're actually not seeing the best arguments that are out there in the conservative Republican space because what most liberals do is they elevate the worst of the Republican Party and they try to sell that as being representative as the whole party. You know, most people know who Marjorie Taylor Greene is. They don't really know who the 10 senators are that are actually voting for a lot of President Biden's agenda. They don't know a ton about some of the more powerful Republicans in Congress, at the governor's level, whatever. And certainly not many of the more influential conservative pundits that are out there. And so I say, if you want to understand how people got there, you know, come read the newsletter and you'll see arguments from the right every day in every newsletter. And when I'm talking to, you know, a more conservative audience or maybe a more Trump right audience, the message is a little different. And it's also genuine. It's that I also think that the media is broken and I think there's a lot of bias in the mainstream press. And I think there are a lot of reporters, most reporters, I think, It's pretty clear. I mean, this is just from social science studies have more left leaning political views. And all of that has an impact on how the press covers major political events at some of the most viewed and most watched and most read news outlets in the country. And I think that's totally true. And so here's a news outlet that is very intentionally putting conservative voices front and center right next to more liberal voices. And I'm someone who's creating this content, who's doing it because I believe that the media ecosystem is broken. And that is also a very attractive proposition to a lot of people on the right. So it just kind of depends. I think overarching the position that I'm taking that I think appeals to both sides is this idea of you don't actually know. I like to ask people a lot of the times and ask my readers, when was the last time you changed your mind about you know, a major political issue? And a lot of people really struggle to think of a good example of that in, in recent memory. And so the follow-up question to that is, okay, are you right about everything, which seems really unlikely, or are you maybe not being exposed to a really diverse set of views out there on major political issues? And it's probably the latter. There's also a third option, which is maybe you don't have very strong opinions about anything and or you just don't know enough about many issues. And so you don't really have really fully developed feelings. And that's another reason I think you should be reading Tangle. That approach, I think, sort of uh, resonates with both sides, but it definitely depends on the audience and, and who I'm talking to. Have you run into other folks who are doing a similar kind of model? I've run into a few, like the flip side or things like that. Do you, do you see there, is there an ecosystem of, of people trying to do this or are you quite a standout at this moment? Yeah, it's funny. Actually, I didn't know about the flip side, believe it or not, when I started Tangle. And my introduction to them was that they sent me a a copyright infringement claim because they sort of thought I was biting their format. And you can imagine, I mean, I was a little bit horrified that they existed because I didn't find out until about five or six months into creating Tangle. I think the work that they're doing is great. I think they are doing, I think, what I'm doing in a much shorter way. Their newsletter is maybe a four or five minute read, whereas I think I do a lot more making sure readers understand the actual topic. I think the flip side is a really good place for people who are like political junkies and they understand the background behind every topic. I think a lot of stuff goes really unexplained in their newsletter. Obviously, I'm I'm biased, but I think it's a little more interesting and a little more human what I'm doing in Tangle because I offer some of my own perspective and experiences. And I think that interests a lot of people. So the flip side is definitely one. They're really the only ones I would consider a, you know, a competitor of mine, maybe. But I think there are other places that I would call, say, are, are in my space or in my lane, although they do different work. I mean, all sides and right, left, center are places that kind of rate 
the media bias of certain organizations. Um, we partner with Ground News, which is a really cool website and app that tells you how a story is being covered, whether you know a lot of right-leaning media outlets are covering it or left-leaning media outlets are covering it. It also tells you about the bias of your news feed on Twitter and things like that and the bias of the people that you're following, which is a really interesting tool they have. Um, and then there are people I've there are a lot of people increasingly who are doing things that are kind of like the real world version of Tangle. And one of the organizations that was around before I started is an organization called Braver Angels. They, they facilitate in-person conversations between what they call blues and reds, which is pretty self-explanatory. And they're not reporting on the news, but they are kind of bringing this multitude of voices together for people to sort of better understand each other, which I think in many ways is like a similar mission that I'm on. So they're a really interesting organization. I've been on their podcast. I've had one of their hosts on my podcast. And I think we we definitely view each other as kind of allies and, and on the same path in this fight a little bit. One of the challenges of right now, in at least in my mind, is... There is a asymmetry between the parties in adherence to factualness. It's sort of incontestable that there is a big difference. And I, I, was, I was talking to a longtime big reporter, Michael Isakoff, the other day, and you know his attitude was, "I've got to look for foibles on both sides." I. I will have no credibility if I don't, um, you know, report down the middle. And I and I was saying, you know, maybe um, there's a lot of choice involved in what you do. And in a time when one, when you have a president who won't accept defeat and will lie about it, maybe you need to change a bit a way that you cover things because of that asymmetry. And I would say. He acknowledges sort of that situation with the Trumpist part of the Republican Party, at least. But he's very wedded to that longtime reportorial ethic. And he's going to report the way he believes is right. And he's going to go after stuff on both sides. And I honor that. Uh, I'm curious how you think about like doing both sides in a time when it's a little different than it used to be. Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. So I, first of all, I'd just say part of the beauty of the Tangle newsletter, I think, and, and what I've built into the format, which I really do believe is kind of the special sauce, is that I get space in my take to share my views on everything. And I get to do it in a really honest way because I say in a straightforward manner, this is my take. This is my opinion. And the pledge that I'm making to readers is I'm going to share with you honestly what I think. So, you know, if, if I think Donald Trump is lying through his teeth about something, I'm going to say that. And it might piss off a lot of my readers who are Trump supporters, but ultimately they know that they're coming to my newsletter and they're reading it. And there's this one section, you know, there's three opinions from the right and three opinions from the left. And there's one section where it's my opinion. And I'm just one of these seven views that they get to see and they can kind of take it or leave it. And plenty of them leave it. I mean, I've pissed off a lot of people on the right and the left who have unsubscribed and sent me nasty emails. And a few times I've actually addressed it directly in the newsletter where I've sort of re-emphasized what the point of Tangle is and why I created this. And this idea that you, you might hate something I write and please don't leave because of that. Like the whole point is that we want to get people exposed to views that they may not agree with. And if you really think I got something wrong, write in and tell me. And I do reader feedback editions where um, I share really harsh criticisms of my writing and things like that. And, uh, you know, I think that that manages to win the trust of people. I think that there is a reality that Donald Trump specifically is a character of a kind that we've never really dealt with in modern day politics. And I, I think there's a lot of ways to handle him and there are a lot of ways to mishandle him. And, you know, I, I think 
one of the things that people get really frustrated about who are Trump supporters is that they feel that he's held to a different standard than many of his predecessors. And one thing I like to say about that is the way that I think the press handled Trump, which is that they viewed everything he said and did skeptically. They were complete bulldogs about him and his family and his associates. They worked day and night nonstop to discredit the things he was saying and to make sure that every sentence he laid out was being fact-checked and all the legislation he was claiming to have passed was actually passed and what kind of hypocritical comments had he made, had he flip-flopped on positions, all of those things. That is how the media should be. The issue to me was not how the press treated Trump, but it's that you know, past presidents like Obama, who I agree, they lied less than Trump did, and they were more traditional in a lot of ways than Trump was. Those presidents got the kid gloves a lot. And that is really what a lot of people who are Trump supporters noticed was that he was so loathed and people were so scared of him by the time that he became president that he was held accountable in a way that past presidents hadn't been. And I think the posture that the media had with him is the posture they should have with every president. I think the real issue was not the treatment he got, but kind of the inconsistency that I do think was behind it in some ways. You said you spent a lot of time learning how to build an audience. What has worked best to build an audience? What's worked best to build a business in this area that a lot of people would love to have a successful one? And how has it gone? A lot of the stuff people say about building something like an email list or, or a news company are really true, which is um, word of mouth is is the the target in the beginning. First of all, you know, I think the product and the content always matters. It doesn't matter how good your strategies are for growth. If if the product you're offering isn't interesting or, or filling a need for people, then it's not going to work. For me, I wanted something like Tangle or like the flip side to exist because I wanted one place to go see a bunch of different views in a single email or a single article on a major debate. And so I created it and I built it. And I think that's a critical way to start is, it, am I feeling a need? Who wants this? Who's my audience? Early on for me, it was literally just asking people to share the newsletter, to forward it to friends. And I grew very slowly, but consistently. I think writing something like a newsletter or publishing something like a podcast in a predictable and consistent cadence is really important. We send a Tangle newsletter every day. It comes out around noon every day and it becomes part of people's routines. And that's really important. And then, you know, create incentives for people to share when the organic growth kind of tapers off in the beginning. So a lot of what I did was post about Tangle on social media, send me a screenshot. I'm going to put your name into a contest to win a $200 gift certificate or something like that. That still sort of borders on the organic growth. And then it's thinking about where your audience is. Once I had an email list that was five or 10,000 people, I did cross promotions where I point to somebody's newsletter because they point to me, or I approach people and said, here's a really cool product I'm building. I think your audience would love it. W one of the biggest successes I had doing that early on was uh, there's a newsletter called The Hustle, which is a really popular business news newsletter. It has like, a, I think a little over a million subscribers or something like that. And I reached out to them, just shot in the dark, cold emailed them and said, here's this product I have. I just built this thing. I feel like your audience would really dig it. It'd be awesome if you gave us a shout out. And they just gave us a free organic plug in their newsletter that you know people pay tens of thousands of dollars to get advertising space in. And I had shot that shot you know, a hundred times without it working. And then it finally worked once and I got a thousand subscribers overnight that I didn't have before. And that kind of thing is just sort of the startup grind. One of the classic pieces of advice that people get is to do things early on that don't scale. And I think that's really, really good advice. Do things that are not repeatable. So try really hard to get earned media. Take your shot at a bunch of influencers or people with huge followings who might give you a shout out or bring you on their show or that kind of thing. 
in that regard, did Ashton ever shout you out? He is not actually, but it's funny you bring that up because um, we're sort of hitting a space now where I have a real business now and, and we're starting to think about hiring people. I have it on my to-do list actually to kind of reach out to him and give him a pitch to potentially invest in Tangle or to help me kind of take it to the next level now that I'm sitting on something that's a real viable business. To this point, again, have not taken any investors and we have some ads on our podcast, but the newsletter and the website are still totally ad-free. It's all subscriber supported and donation supported. But it's interesting to me to think about, you know, what would I do if I had $100,000 in cash and and how many new readers could I get in a month with that kind of funding? And when I think about that, it's, you know, I want to work with people or seek out investors who I really trust and know. And someone like him would be one of those people. So um, I'm thinking about that a little bit as, as a next step about how to do this, how to take this thing to the next level. Because I mean, I'm astonished that I have 40,000 daily readers. And uh, when you have 40,000 daily readers, what happens is if you write something that really resonates with a lot of them, it can turn into 100,000 readers pretty quickly, just from people sharing the newsletter or posting about something you wrote on social media and that kind of thing. I believe what we're doing is good for the country. I, I believe it's it's good for people's brains and the partisans who are out there. And because of that, I want as many people to see it as possible, which makes it worthwhile to me to consider bringing in outside help to get it in front of more people. What do you have for help right now? You, you sort of indicated you're thinking about hiring. Do you have uh, contractors? Are you doing? It seems like an awful lot for one guy to put out every day. What's the team? Yeah. Well, it's definitely an awful lot. I work a ton. I'm, I'm working on my, my work-life balance, but my main employee is a woman whose name is Magdalena. Um, she runs all of our social media channels and she is part-time. She works about 20 hours a week. She's a mom. She's got a, a beautiful baby at home. And so it's sort of a nice arrangement where she gets some extra time with him, but has the steady income. She was my first hire. Uh, I brought her on very early, right when I started really making any money and basically asked her to take a risk with me where I could pay her pennies on what she was really worth and promise like when this thing grows and if it does, I'll bring you along for the ride. I'm now sort of trying to fulfill that promise. And then we have three part-time editors on the newsletter. So those are people who do maybe one or two hours a week of work where they're editing the, the drafts of the newsletter once I have something put together. And one of those editors is my dad, to give you an idea of how serious that group is. Another is a really good friend of mine who is one of the smartest people I know and a really good writer. And and then the third is a young guy who actually works professionally as a copy editor for the Texas State Legislature and was a Tangle reader and reached out to me and said, I see all these typos in your newsletter every day and it drives me insane. Let me edit it and I'll do it for free. And um, I'm now paying all three of them, including my dad, a little weekly stipend for their hour or two of work that they do a day. And it's really cool. They're honest and they're politically diverse in their views and they challenge me and they catch a lot of mistakes and they're good at what they do. I've had you know professional editors and some of the best news organizations in the world work my stuff. And, and I think the three of them together do, you know, equally strong work on, on my writing that, that those other professional editors have done. And then I have a podcast editor who's another part-time employee. I pay him an hourly rate. He's a freelance guy, a contractor. He probably works about an hour or two every day. So when the newsletter's done, I immediately go sit in my studio, my little makeshift closet studio and I read the newsletter and riff on it a little bit. And then I just send him a raw recording of that. He edits it, drops in some news clips, some music, and then publishes it. And the podcast is small compared to the newsletter. We probably have a thousand, two thousand listeners who tune into it every day, but they, they really like it. They prefer to listen. And that's how that sort of came to be was just a lot of people were requesting it. And then the last piece is sort of in the last year or two, I have started bringing on interns. Uh, so right now we have two interns who are working, both are college students, both are people who are interested in either politics or social media as a career. 
And I bring them on, you know, on three month contracts where they get kind of a, I think it's a $1,500 stipend. So they get, you know, 500 bucks a month to work a couple hours a day on Tangle stuff. And I pass off some of the brunt work to them, but both of them right now are doing really substantial research and editing on the newsletter. I mean, they're doing work that is really, really valuable. And our first ever intern, I'm really proud he was with us for about six months as an editor, and he went and got a job at Persuasion, which is Yasha Monk's newsletter and news organization. And so he, we were kind of a springboard for him to get his first real journalism job um, of his career, which was really cool. So yeah, there's a whole mishmash of people involved. And um, you know, I'd like to make one or two of them full-time employees here pretty soon and see, see what the, the return on that would be. I mean, with the... Ashton Kusher outfit, you saw it grow enough that it actually was producing its own news. What is your ambition? Like, can you see far out to like having a staff of, of professional reporters right now? You're kind of doing sort of commentary on the news. It's not generating its own news. Where do you want to take it in the long run? Yeah. Um, so I have no ambition to be the next CNN or Fox News or whatever. I do not want to turn this into some major global news organization with 500 people. And if I accidentally fall into that and become super rich and Tangle becomes really famous, I'm sure I wouldn't be upset about it. But that that's really not what my goal is. My goal is to have a really small, well-paid team that works really well together with a bunch of people who are really happy to be there and really invested in the mission. What about like audience size? I mean, 40,000 people is a lot. It's also a tiny number in a nation of 300 plus million people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I definitely have the ambition to get to at least a million readers. I, I think a million people is a number where, first of all, the amount of money that we're bringing in would just accumulate in a way that we could continue to buy more readers and buy more exposure, which is kind of like the dream scenario. I also think for whatever reason, that number to me is, it's a number that feels so influential. It feels like we could really move conversations if we had a million people who were subscribed to our newsletter. I also think it's a number that's achievable. Tangle is coming up on being three years old, but I am just over a year into doing this as a full-time job. And so I know there's so much low-hanging fruit and there are so many things out there that I could be doing that I'm not doing right now to grow the business. And so long-term... That, that's definitely a goal for me. The, the core product is the, the Tangle newsletter, the politics newsletter, and getting to something like a million readers is kind of like the pie in the sky goal. Let's shoot for that and let's see where we land. There are financial goals that are tied to that too. I mean, I would love to be doing fifty dollars or $60,000 of monthly revenue. A number like that puts me in a place where I can pay myself and a couple staff members six-figure salaries and still be able to put a lot of money back into growing the business. So that's a goal for me. And then I think personally that the format and the brand that we have lends itself to expansion in a few different ways. There are a couple ideas that I have about doing that. We have readers in over 50 countries outside the US. So one of the things I get the most in my inbox is people saying, is there a Tangle France or is there a Tangle Sweden? Can you you know, do a newsletter on this issue that's happening in my country? And I think it would be really fun to, you know, if we had $80,000 in the bank to go find a reporter who could be Isaac, be me in a different country and give them a one-year $80,000 contract or something like that and say, can you write this newsletter for a year in the Tangle format in your language and see if you can build out the readership? You and, can sell and the franchise. I wonder if there's a question that I haven't asked you that you wish I had. No, I mean, it's all, I, I think a lot of your questions have really touched on the core of, of what we're trying to do. So I feel pretty good about it. Well, I wish you a lot of luck with the, with the enterprise. And, you know, I guess if I have one more question, it's, 
something you have touched upon a little bit, but it's sort of how do you think the growth of this helps the country in a time where it is being stretched as a democracy and tested in, in different ways than it was before? Well, look, I mean, fundamentally, I think it's really important to be honest about where we are right now. We had violent riots at the Capitol during a, what had traditionally been a peaceful transfer of power a year and a half ago. We have had successive candidates and presidents on both sides of the aisle, but obviously Donald Trump kind of takes the cake, who have questioned the results of the election. We have a country where an increasing number of people every day say that they don't trust the sources of their news. We have a country where an increasing number of people every day say they wouldn't sit down and have dinner with somebody who has different political views than them, or they wouldn't date somebody with pl different political views than them. And we have a country where people are increasingly afraid to talk about their actual views, what they actually think and feel. And all of those things concern me greatly. And I think what I hope Tangle does is it offers people a, a kind of tuned down, temperature lowered avenue to engage views that they may not agree with and engage views that they do agree with. And to also just get a more balanced and less sensationalist presentation of some of the news that's happening out there. There are things that are happening that are really scary and that deserve blaring headlines. And there are things that are happening that are really important in terms of preserving our democracy and making sure that people's votes actually put into office the people who we want. I don't you know, intend to sugarcoat any of those things, but our our media is fundamentally broken, in my opinion, in that most media organizations out there have very clear political stances or affiliations. And I think that's a big issue. And so we're hoping to just build trust with readers across the spectrum and build a community of readers who can talk about our newsletter and talk about the stuff we're covering and, and help facilitate those conversations because they see themselves in it and they also feel challenged by it. And yeah, I think I think more than anything, our country needs a lot of that right now because I don't think we're there. I don't think we're having productive conversations, and I'm hoping that we can we can do a little bit of that. I'm a quite a partisan person, but I am never afraid to read the arguments on the other side, and I, I enjoy it, and I learn from it, and I I think I grow from it, and I I value a enterprise like yours, which is working to bring Americans together in certain ways. So I appreciate your time. Anything else you want to say? No, that's it. Um, thank you so much, Nathaniel, for having me on. And let's keep in touch. Hopefully we can do this again sometime. Okay. Take care. That was Isaac Saul. Isaac is at readtangle.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.